Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host. and this episode, we chat with Mike Dozer-Shower on his time-flying F-15 Sea Eagle and also the F-22 Air Raptor. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can also donate by going to aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. I would like to thank our sponsor, Calibre Wings, who produce detailed scale die cast models that strive to deliver a detailed experience that incorporates light weathering and colour toning that start from their Wave 3 models. This is finally bundled into a nice collector's box with dedicated illustrative box art to match. Please visit CaliberWings.com. Okay, so Dozer, when did you first become interested in aviation? I think when I was born. When you were born, that was it. Yeah, as far as I know, my mom said when I was two... I used to make her take me to the airport to watch airplanes. Wow. So who has desires at that age? I guess it's just something that's always been a part of who I am. I, mm-hmm. I honestly, my mom said from the time I was born, basically, that's all I ever liked was airplanes. Wow. So what year did you join the U.S. Air Force? And can you tell us some of the air training aircraft you started on? I uh, joined. I went to the Air Force Academy in July of 1986. And... At the Air Force, you flew gliders and you flew T-41s, which is basically a Cessna 172, although I already had my private pilot's license before I showed up at the academy. Mm-hmm. And then went to pilot training in Oklahoma where we flew T-37s, mm-hmm. which we don't have anymore. They're now gone. T-38s. And then when that was over, I went right to F-15s. Wow. So how long was your initial basic training? Uh, and from a flying perspective? Yeah. Pilot training? That lasts a year, and that's still the same in the, in the Air Force today, at least the U.S. Air Force. It's about a year long. That's very quick compared to the RAF, that's for sure. Some folks like the – I know I went over and spent some time with the Fens, and uh, their, pros, their process takes years um, to get there, and you start off in a different way. The Air Force, I think, maybe perhaps tradition, size, I don't know what makes it different. But you know, you go to pilot train, after that they kick you out to your fighter platform if you're lucky enough to, to graduate high enough to get a fighter. Mm-hmm. Or bomber, whatever it is, and then it takes you know maybe four to six months depending on the program, and then off you go to a squadron, you're operational. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of sink or swim, and some of the training is pushed off onto the operational squadrons, and you just have to you have to learn and catch up. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. So, what was your first operational aircraft, and did you get a choice in the matter? I did. Um, when I graduated pilot train, I was lucky enough to be number one in my class. I say lucky because anybody can have a bad day, so it worked out well. And, uh, so I was able to have the choice of whatever came down. Uh, there was five bases that were choosing the same night. That's what they, they called assignment night. You get to choose based on what's on the board. They go, okay, this base, you're on the phone. You get to choose whatever's up there. Then the next base, the next base, it keeps going as the airplanes disappear off the board until the very last person at whatever base gets whatever's left. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were like second or third base. There was four F-15, four F-15s, I think, in a F-111, something like that. And fortunately, we were like the second or third base to choose. And so I was like, F-15 it is. And uh, so picked an F-15C. It was actually to Elmendorf ironically and uh that's that's how i got to choose so it just kind of worked out that way so we had to go to tyndall for training uh, so my first operation aircraft was an f-15 and uh that was right after pilot training that was about four or five months or so of training if i remember right and then after that training was over at tyndall kicked up to Ellendorf mm-hmm. in alaska so going back a bit uh what did your ground training entail on the f-15 the the biggest part, I think, up front is the study. A lot of study because, you know, you need to study. And that's one of the part of being a fire pilot. You're almost always studying. So people think you're out, you know, like Top Gun. You you fly once or twice a day. Then you go chase girls at the bar and work <laughs> out. 
volleyball and then yay no it's not that at all you know 12 hour 14 hour days are the norm mm-hmm. um, and if you're not doing your job if you're not a scheduler or uh, you could be a trait in training standardization evaluation you name it there's all these different ancillary jobs you have to do <clears throat> I say that to say because the rest of the time if you're really going to be successful in the fighter world you're studying so you're studying aircraft systems, mm-hmm. you know, not the basic stuff, hydraulics, flight control, et cetera, but you're also studying the weapon systems, you know, your radar warning receiver, your radar, how it works. Um, you're studying the weapons themselves. You know, these days it's mostly AIM-120s, AIM-9X. How do they work? What's the capabilities of them? And then take it from there, you start studying the tactics Bible, the 3-1 that talks about here's how we employ the aircraft in two-ship, four-ship, in a big mission, et cetera. And then you keep racking that all the way up to the friendly guys. We're talking about the Brits. We're talking about the Aussies and what they fly, et cetera. Take it to the next level. That's the blue and gray stuff. Then you go to the red guys, right? You start talking maybe old Soviet equipment, surface-to-air missiles, uh, enemy aircraft or so-called that could be enemies, right, because it could be anybody. Uh, So when you take that information, I mean, you literally could study 12 hours a day every day for your entire life and never get to all the information. So Mm -hmm. that's a long answer to your short question, but there's a lot involved. The the ground study is – I, I don't mean intense like in the physical sense. It's intense of there's so much information, and you also have to learn how to wicker that down mm-hmm. into the things that are important. Because not you know how well your hydraulic system works. Nah, you don't really need that when you're in combat. You kind of need to know how your weapons are working and the tactics and what the bad guys have. Um, but it's all part of the things in the back of your head. Because if you get hit in combat, if something breaks, it's an emergency, and you have to be able to handle it. Mm-hmm. So it starts with everything from basic aircraft systems working all the way through to the advanced threats that you might face in combat. Um, and it's a lot of information to study. So it's, it takes, it, well, basically it never stops. I was a squadron commander for 18, 19 years. I'm still studying. <laughs> things are, or what we're doing, you know, whatever it happens to be. So there's a lot of information. So can you remember your first trip in the F-15? Oh yeah. Yeah, I do. What um, was that like? Very- Flight with a guy in the back seat because uh, he had instructors. We had two seat models. Didn't in the F twenty two. We do an F fifteen, and it was at a Tyndall, and it was the first one. And I think the second one was where you got to do the max performance takeoff and tr- up you yeah. go. Um, but the first one I remember because it was just you're like there's so many things happening all at once. Single basically you go out and I think you did some aerobatics and you know basic stuff with the aircraft just to get a feel for it a little bit and then come back and do a whole bunch of instrument approaches which are boring everybody hates them but you have to learn how to do it because you're mm-hmm. flying by yourself you, know, you don't have all the fancy stuff you have in the modern airliners or whatnot so you have to you know and it's all you so there's no other crew to rely on so uh, I do remember it it was hot because it was summertime I want to say it was late April and uh, in Florida so hot humid. Um, a lot going on, trying to catch up to the airplane because you're way behind it. I mean, you know, your mill power in an F-15 was as good as afterburners in T-38. So the uh-huh. fastest powerful thing you've seen is all of a sudden you're just like behind the jet. And it takes a little bit of time. And the, the second story we did the Max Performance, same thing. It's like, holy cow. You're like, now that's a full burner. It's like Star Wars. You know, <laughs> they go to light. It goes, whoo, past you. That's what it kind of feels like. Mm-hmm. And then what's really ironic later on in, in life, you feel like, actually – Everything's real slow. You got to burn it. Come on, let's go faster. You know, it's kind of weird after your body catches up to it. it takes time. Because, yeah, I do yeah. remember. Really cool, and I remember being very overwhelmed because things happen so fast. Yeah. So, what kind of flying sorties would you do in your training in the F fifteen? Yeah, the first ones, like I was just saying, you know, it's a lot of aerobatics, kind of, you know, your basic airmanship. Learn how to fly the airplane because the airplane can, you know, you have to know how to max perform your aircraft and make it do whatever you can make it do without putting it out of control because that's what's 
potentially going to be required in combat. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody else is flying their airplane well and it's a good airplane, you, know, you could be evenly matched. That's tough. That's tough fight. So you do that all the way through the instrument, you know, stuff that's all the uh, front boring. But then it starts working out the very basics. So two airplanes together, and you start doing the basics of, you know, the air combat maneuvering. But really, we would call it BFM, which is single ship, and they have different terms depending on where you are. So the, you know, the dogfight. You know, you're offensive, learn how to get in and kill the other guy. Then you're defensive, trying to learn how to survive. Um, and then you do the what they call high aspect BFM for up, which is neutral. You just hit the merge neutral and just see who can win based mm-hmm. on, you know, directions. Um, and then from there you step it up and then you go out as a two ship and that's the basic pair in the, in the air force and the Navy Marines, et cetera, for the U S at least most, most air forces that is a two ship mm-hmm. and, and you learn how to work together. Okay. Two of you versus one bad guy, you know, and then it steps up from there to intercepts and two versus two and maybe two versus four, you know, so everything just keeps building. But you know, the, when you're the new guy, two versus two or four is about the max you're going to do. Cause you get overwhelmed pretty quick with that too. So yeah, it seems you're the sensor operator. You have to do it all yourself. You're manipulating the radar, making it all work, and everything comes in through the radio. You got to build a three-dimensional picture in your head, mm-hmm. uh, and you go take an F-22. And this is—I know we're diverging off this, but you know F-22 does it all for you. So you can take four of the most highly experienced weapons instruct weapons school instructors on the planet, put them in four F-15s and a lieutenant clueless nobody in an F-22. He's probably going to find them all, kill them all, and they'll probably not be able to do nothing about it. Wow. You put out a clueless in an F-15. Um, you know, you put even a one good guy on the other side, it's very likely the lieutenant's going to get killed. So, um, because it's just that there's that much of a difference in technology. So, you know, back then the F-15 still reigned supreme, um, still kind of the best airplane kind of out there for a lot of read big radar helps, you know, flies relatively high at the time I thought until F-22 came along. Um, and, uh, a lot of it, I think more than anything was the sensors, the weapons we had and the training mm-hmm. and those make a difference because if you have two guys in similar aircraft and one has really good training and tactics and the other doesn't well he's probably going to win mm-hmm. um if one if they have two similar airplanes but one airplane has much better weapons that airplane is very likely to win so at the time through the 90s at least in the 2000s you know we really um i think our tactics were better than most i'm talking i'm not talking you know like other tier one countries but more like maybe the the countries might fly against like iraq you know etc um our tactics were certainly better our training and how much we flew in practice was much better um our weapons were typically a lot better our command and control structure like with AWACS, helping all of those that bits of information that you need to build a situational 3d three-dimensional picture around yourself was better um, and of course, when we go to combat, we're pretty good at tearing apart their system. You know, we take down their eyes and ears, you know, we take out their advanced radar warning. We would shut down their communications, you know, whatever it takes to blind them, to make it hard for them to fight. And usually that didn't happen to us. So we came in with a lot of awareness and they didn't. So, um, I think that, uh, that at the, at the time, the F-15, certainly through the nineties and the two thousands kind of reigned, like mm-hmm. I said, on, for all of those reasons, it's not, it's really hard. Mike, to say one thing, you go, oh, that's the reason. It's yeah. more than one. It's usually many factors that kind of combine and get pretty complex. But suffice to say, good airplane, even though it was getting older, really good weapons, um, still pretty good sensors, excellent training um, and tactics. And, and with the other ancillary support things that come on board with that, you add all those together, we typically did really, really well. Brilliant. So then you got posted to Elmendorf. What was your role there? Started off as a brand new lieutenant, um, Snacko. I'm the guy that gets the beer and the potato chips in the bar, right? That's kind of your role. 
you're always the new guy and you start off that way. And of course you're just trying to fly as much as you can and get experience and, uh, everybody wants to fly as much as they can because uh, that's what you're there for. It's what you love to do. So a lot of, a lot of flying, a lot of studying. I became a scheduler right away. That was my ancillary job I talked about, which you sit there all day trying to figure out what the next schedule is going to be for the next day and the day after that and next week. And it's it's complicated. It changes. Somebody falls out. Uh, somebody gets sick. You know, whatever happens, and the whole schedule explodes on you. And so you spend hours trying to fix the next day. And mm-hmm. always jealous of the guys that were working in weapons or somewhere where they got to study because you're out doing the crappy job, which nobody wants to be in scheduling, which I was in scheduling almost my entire first assignment. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you try to, uh, you know, work your way through that. And then after that, Mike is trying to get um, always an upgrade, right? Because you start off as a wingman, you want to be a flight lead. And then mm-hmm. you're a two-ship flight lead. That takes a lot of study and practice and an upgrade program that kind of kicks you pretty hard. And then you want to be a four-ship flight lead so you can take four ships out. Because that's the basic we typically go to war with. And then you want to be able to be a mission commander, which can go out and take a four or eight ship of, you know, your aircraft, F-15s, and mix into a big, like a red flag or an actual combat, you know, a mission, you know, if we were deployed. Like at, at the time, it was always uh, flying out of Turkey or Saudi Arabia over Iraq, all the no-fly zones. <laughs> and then you want to be an instructor pilot. That's the next thing, right? So then you're always gunning for that one because then that's the guy that gets to fly the blue air all the time, the good ones, because now you're training the guys that are doing their upgrades, and you get to be the wingman and listen to the break. <laughs> fun flying. Um, so you're always kind of on that. And the other part is for a lot of folks is the desire once you get in the fighter world. So you want to go be a, a weapon school, want to go to weapon school, which is our top gun. Um, the air force had it first. I always have to mention that over the Navy because the Navy got the really cool movie and we got Iron Eagle, which sucked. <laughs> yeah, very and, true. Yeah. So, but the, it's called the U S air force weapon school and the Navy calls it the same thing. It's just top gun was the nickname. Mm-hmm. So Everybody wants to go to that because, you know, you only pick, uh, you know, four, five, six guys every six months to go through. So it's a pretty small group. Mm-hmm. And the training is incredible. I mean, it's getting your Ph.D. in flying, right? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, but you have to be an instructor pilot for a certain amount of time and hours before you get that. I got very lucky. I upgraded very quickly at Elmendorf, and the timing was right. And I was able to uh, get to be an instructor fast enough to build up enough time that at the end of my first assignment, I actually went to weapon school. Oh, wow. Um, and so – after that three years and some change, I went off to weapon school. And then when that was over, uh, I went off to Lake and Heath after that uh, as the next assignment. So it's um, that's one of those kind of coveted positions if you're lucky enough to get them, timing works out, you know, et cetera. And, and we flew a lot at Elmendorf back in the 90s when I was here. So I was able to get the hours. Some people were places where they couldn't fly so much, and it was a little bit uh, – it was a lot harder to get the hours you needed. Not so much because they didn't have the capabilities. Sometimes things just don't work out. Um, so I was in the right place at the right time for that. So how was it different flying over in the UK compared to the US? Hugely different in a lot of reasons. Europe is a very compact airspace. I mean, tight, you know, a lot of uh, people, a lot of uh, airplanes, a lot of countries flying. Um, the rules were much different, much tighter in Europe than they were in Alaska. You know, Alaska is pretty much take off, leave Anchorage. I was like, okay, see you. Go do your thing. <laughs> And these massive airspaces, you know, one of our airspaces is, I think, much bigger than England. You know, it's just the airspace, you know, close to, I mean, a little bit of exaggeration, but it's massive. Mm -hmm. And no real restrictions, almost no people. So you don't have to worry about that. You fly over the land in Europe, you better be careful. You go supersonic, you go here, you go there. I mean, there's people everywhere, you get in trouble. It's it's kind of a, it's kind of a downer for a pilot, fighter pilot especially. It's not the days back in the, you know, 60s and 70s with the fold of gap in the the Soviets where you could go crazy and supersonic and have all these battles and nobody cared and i can't do that anymore so the best training space we had was over the water mm-hmm. uh, where we got to fight with them 
for folks. You know, we got to fight with Brits and, you know, the Dutch and everybody else would come in, the Germans, et cetera. That was pretty good and, and no restrictions. But um, and of course, the weather, the weather tends to be foggy, you know, uh, nasty a lot in, in northern Europe, if you will, over there. So that was often an issue. Um, so the flying stuff. But I will tell you, I mean, the weather was kind of in the airspaces were kind of constricted because of the, the environment. But the, the flying we got to do. The amount of people we got to fly against, I mean, nearly every sortie could be against a dissimilar adversary if you wanted it to be because somebody wanted to fly with you. Mm-hmm. Whether you were up whatever country, F-16s, tornadoes, you name it, they were all over the place. I mean, so we got to fly with all kinds of cool stuff. The Harriers would come in. I mean, just the, the amount of training opportunities against other countries and aircraft types was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and even a lot of exercises because like every month there's another exercise going on in Europe you can go participate in. Mm-hmm. Um, so the training opportunities were awesome. Um, and, uh, on top of that, um, you know, it's just living in Europe, you know, you go, Oh, America, you get to go to Europe so you can go see these different countries and go see some of the history, which we did a lot of. Um, I think my wife, I mean, I was deployed 14 months out of the two and a half years we were there because Kosovo and, you know, I think several times in Iraq, you know, flying out of Turkey over Iraq, you know, but my wife's like, the heck with you. She's like, she's gone. She's taking the kids. And then Travel and seeing things pretty cool. So, overall, it was a fantastic assignment. It's just a much different environment, obviously, than Alaska. So, but you know, they both have pros and cons. Alaska, we rarely saw adversaries. We almost always flying against other F-15s, which has is there's some things that aren't perfect about that either. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that was great because you know you're flying and get your marshmallow man if it's you know minus twenty degrees out and you're all geared up and all this stuff and that's uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, everything's got its pros and cons. They always do. And then while you were uh, well, based at Lake and Heath, in 1999, you had a pretty eventful evening, didn't you? Could you share this with us? Yeah, I did. Um, they had that whole, you know, we'll avoid the politics and all the stuff about the, yeah. the, the campaign of Operation Allied Force because there was a lot going on in that part of the world. But, um, you know, now nobody wants to see war, obviously, because there's bad stuff. But there was bad things happening anyways. Regardless, our leaders put us there, right? I mean, NATO and, exactly. and the U.S., we just had to get involved. So uh, at the end of the day, we just went and did our, you know, did what we were told to do, basically. And, uh, you know, so we were deployed out of Italy, which was a really cool deployment, minus the war part of it, because, you know, I hadn't been to Italy before, and the, you know, the food was good, and we lived near a beach and a hotel, and I mean, it was just, it was a really cool setup, and the folks were re- really friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I enjoyed that. Part. So, yeah, March 24, 1999, uh, we, we, that was the first day of Operation Allied Force um, when the aircraft got involved. I'm sure there were ground things happening that we didn't know about, but um, aircraft got involved, and um, I was fortunate enough being the weapons officer still. They would just hand it off to a brand-new weapons officer, but he just got there and didn't know the squadron. So, you know, of course, I'm planning everything kind of from that perspective. And we had uh, two, four F-15s up north. Going into Serbia, we had four down south, and we had two big strike packages. So we had two pushes, if you will, that very first night, you know, in, in from the north and south side times two. So, But they were separated by, obviously, a number of hours. And um, there was a lot of kind of surreal things because I'd been in Iraq a lot, and every once in a while they toss a surface there, missile or something, but not a big deal, right? And uh, this was a little different because this was like a real country that was intact. Its infrastructure was there. The Serbs are not known. I mean, they know how to fight. I mean, mm-hmm. they're good fighters. Um, their equipment was just, you know, not as up to par as ours was yeah. or the mass numbers that we had right control. So I don't take anything away from the Serbs because I said they're you know, they're tough. If they had the same equipment, you know, or, or more things to their advantage. It would have been a heck of a lot harder fight for sure. Um, you know, plus, you know, I give them kudos. They're defending their country, right? I mean, but we'd all do the same thing if we had 
because we're attacking their country, exactly. right or wrong or whatever. You get the ball to but they're you know got it. They're defending their country. That's that's what they're supposed to do. I would have done the same thing. Mm-hmm. So um, we had specifically for where I was, I was down south or up north. I had a four F-15s, four F-16 CJs, was shooting the harm missiles back at the surface air missiles, playing that little game. And we had two B-2s that were coming in all the way from the United States, and they were flying from the north, south side of the country all the way across it to the north. And we were kind of, you know, the, the southern force with its strike package of aluminum jets was going to kind of hand off the B-2s halfway across the country to us and mm-hmm. then protect them there. And then we had 10 F-117s. They were still flying. So that was our strike package up north. We were the stealth package. Wow, uh, Except for the That's a lot. 8 f yeah, it was. Uh, the, other than the eight F-15s and F-16s total, because we were the chum, right? They can see us and shoot us, but they can't see the other guys. That's part of the theory. So we pushed in from uh, uh, Hungary and went south towards Belgrade, and that's where most of our targets were at. And uh, uh, we were out in front of everybody because that's the F-15's job. And we kind of got to the very first cap, which is just north of Belgrade, and we had four of us. We were split apart because it's all nighttime, so it's dark. And we're in a trail formation, so, you know, three- to five-mile trail is kind of what we did back in the day. Mm-hmm. Don't do that anymore, but we used to. And because we didn't have data link, we didn't have images, we didn't have any of the fancy tools that you have now for all this stuff to make it uh, much easier to employ that way. And so um, we got to the very south edge of our cap, our combat air patrol, and we kind of did our first spin. And as I turned around on that, you know, the F-16s are getting close, F-117s right behind them. You don't know that other than you know they're getting close, timing-wise. And I saw the first uh, little blip on the radar, um, and it was out of Batajanica, which was their MiG-29 base um, out of Belgrade. And so I locked it up. It was 150 knots, you know, 1,500 feet, you know, just taking off. I'm sure, I, mean, I know, it was their pilots, you know, their MiG-29s alert scrambling as soon as they knew we were coming in. So those guys were hopping in their jets and firing up to take off. And uh, he turned around about 35 miles, and I kind of track him down the scope for a bit, and I lock him, you know, at the appropriate range, say 25-ish miles or so, and start working the electronic ID because there's a number of things we had to, to fulfill to say that he was a hostile, somebody that we could shoot at. And I did all that, and we got a lot closer. We were probably about 14, 15 miles apart. Finally got the ID, called it out on the radio, and took the first shot, which was an AIM-120, mm-hmm. um, and then followed it up very shortly after because it was active. We were so close, it was active off the rail, mm-hmm. um, which switched over to AIM-7 because we had uh, two AIM-7s, four AIM-120s, and the AIM-7's got a big warhead. You hope it really does, you know, takes care of the problem if, it, if it's still, if the aircraft's still working. And plus, I'd always want to shoot one. So um, it was one of those kind of things as well. I'm like, hey, I can shoot as many as I want here because this is combat. And we also had a philosophy, typically always shoot two, because missiles miss. And, you know, they're not hittles, they're missiles, right? They miss yeah. a lot. And our peak is like 60% or something, you know, whatever. X number of missiles aren't going to hit. So not, something's not going to work. The enemy's going to maneuver. It's going to get jammed or chat, you know, whatever. So you always try to shoot a couple mm-hmm. to up the probability of a kill. I did that. And off they went. And staring at Belgrade in the background, pretty cool because it's a VFR night, so crystal clear, lights of the city in the background. And I'm just watching the missiles go, and uh, they get to about five, six miles, and the aircraft's breaking into the beam on me. And uh, I watch the first missile time out. About the time the second one times out, I don't see a fireball. I'm like, uh-oh, switch over back to an AMRAM, shoot a third one. Um, and now I'm diving down towards him, and he's kind of you know in a corner to me turning. When that last missile comes off at about five-ish miles, uh, he breaks out of the beam, starts to kind of come merge head-to-head. And we're about a mile and a half, two miles apart. The missile, which I'm just watching the motor because I can see it burn. So I don't know. I can't see him with the eyeballs. I'm just watching the, the missile. I'm looking outside, and the missile motor from that little orange goes to big fireball. Mm-hmm. And so, my God, 
right? So I call splash on the radio and kind of watch it spiral, you know, down towards the ground. Um, you never know what happens to the pilot. You find out after, you know, all the things are over, they had to pick him up and he survived. Okay. Uh, I believe only one pilot of the ones that were shot down died. And they told us based on, you know, what they had for intelligence assets, gathering information that the only one that actually died was, I believe one of them died during the ejection. Um, and that two V two daytime, a couple days later that we had, uh, and one and, or one of them might've died because they believe one of their own aircraft was shot down by a surface air missile. Right. Yeah. So I even have the interview from the guy the, uh, that, uh, I shot down uh, from the, the Yugoslav press. It's kind of funny because oh. all the timing matched. So, um, but I watched that one and came off of that and went back to the back edge of my cap, you know, and, and uh, came back around and watched the next guy take off. I'm like, oh boy, here we go again. Now the strike factor is around us. This looked exactly like the first one. I did the it, everything was the same except this guy went in, into that kind of that sideways maneuver that beam very early, and um, and I was up at high altitude because the strike package is below me and we're not really supposed to dive down there. So I'm like, Ooh, okay, so I kind of stay up high and I don't get down low and I can't fulfill all the ID requirements at the time. And this was something I found out after the sortie was over. I was screaming on the radio to folks, um, you know, about ID, lack of friendly, some of the electronic stuff. And F-16s and F-15s were looking at this guy as well. My other two eagles were. And nobody could get an electronic ID. They were The F-16s couldn't do lack of friendly, you know, looking for the, the IFF codes on them. Mm-hmm. We could. And I was trying to – I was listening to the F-16s because I knew two of the guys on the radio. And they were asking for that call. And I made that call like five times on my radio. You listen to my tape, the radio is like making the squelching sound. It was jamming itself. And so about 75% of my calm that I put out that night, nobody heard, which I had wow. no idea, right? They just being quiet, I guess, or everything's yeah. all calm and good. And so all of the eagles and vipers, uh, I ended up right over the top of the guy, like at 35,000 feet, and he's at 10 um, with my two ship. And everybody else had to turn around and run away because nobody could ID him to get in there. And you can't get in there at night in terms of somebody. So. This one little MiG-29 is like everybody's running away from them, all eight of us, right, trying to get separation. One of the F-16s got a spike, may or may not have been from the MiG-29, turned around, ran up for a while. Anyway, so I kind of get over the top of them, and I kind of do a spin. AWACS tells me there's another MiG-29 to the south. I'm like, son of a gun, you know, where are they coming from? So I turn around, and this whole package with that MiG-29 keep going north, and we drive right over the northern edge of Belgrade, nothing on the radar at all. We can't see a thing. Um, come to find out later, AWACS is pretty infamous for calling ground traffic because they have filters. And mm. if they have the filter set low, uh, you know, BMW doing a hunter on the highway can pop up as an aircraft and they can right, pull it out. Yeah. You know, I'm not, it happens and you know, they're getting excited in the moment with things happening. So, um, they were calling it out as traffic and they, they of course said 29. I'm like, ah, so turn around, nothing there. We're over Belgrade getting, you know, kind of in the Sam rings. I'm like, that's it. We're going North. The F-16s and F-15s had turned around at that time and said, hey, Dozer, they didn't really use that for my call sign. They said, uh, my actual call sign at the time. They said, hey, there's a uh, the hostile, you know, blah, 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 bullseye. I'm like, turn around. I'm like, oh, he's right off the nose, 20 miles away. As soon as I turn around, one sweep of the radar, there he is. I lock him, immediately get all the ID stuff within seconds that I need to declare that he's a bad guy, um, except that now I don't know where everybody else is. So mm-hmm. I'm still up high, like 7,000 feet. This dude's at 10. And I drive. I start diving for the deck now. And I and I know there's stuff, but at some point I got to get down here to you know get in the appropriate place to shoot. And while this is happening, I'm screaming on the radio, asking everybody for their posit where they're at. Nobody hears a thing because my radio's not working. Yeah. I have no idea. And I'm, I'm I'm hostile. I'm saying here he is, and I'm asking him nothing. And this is happening fast because we're beak to beak. It started like 18 miles, so it doesn't take long. And I get to five miles, and I'm at like 
20,000 feet diving, and I'm like, screw it. I can't wait anymore. I don't know where anybody is, and I figure at five miles I'm close enough, you know, that there's probably not anybody between us. So I go, and I shoot another AIM-120. Made a mistake. only shot one. Second mistake, I didn't offset. I just drove right at him. If I had given myself some room, I could have pulled in behind him mm-hmm. and continued to shoot if he didn't blow up. So I just take the one because I'm screaming on the radio, and really I'm behind. I'm not paying attention. And that dude um, – uh, or I'm watching the not dude, that guy, I'm watching the missile, and uh, I see a little kind of pop, like a little explosion. I go, ooh, no fireball, though. I mean, I don't know, did, I, did it go by the aircraft and detonate? Did it hit the ground? I have no idea because mm-hmm. time dilation. So I see that, and I look, no fireball, and I come back in to shoot again because he's almost underneath me now, and the radar is flashing. I'm like, he's about to gimbal off the bottom because I didn't do that little intercept and pull. I'm like, son of a – so I do a, a full split ass at night right, and end up right over the top of the guy somewhere uh-huh. that bought me very close couple thousand feet away and he of course he drops off the radar right in the middle of it I'm like son of a gun so now i got a probably a live mig below me right there nobody have no idea and this is all happening with me now i have no time to talk to anybody and tell them what's going on this is happening i throw out this auto guns radar mode trying to find the guy i, I give it a little bit i'm like no mvgs i'm like can't see anything i'm like this is not a good place to be so i just basically start doing a 360 spin to come back around and try to catch them well in the meantime i look up on the spin i see this guy up in the contrails and that's my wingman who had stayed up there the whole time and he was locked to him find out after the sortie's over he's locked to him everything's good but he gets no idea i'm the only guy that gets an id and he doesn't hear me say hostile he doesn't hear me say fox three he doesn't hear any of the stuff that i'm doing nobody does and so i look down after i'm chasing this guy doing this spin to get back around the corner and i see him still headed in the direction of the mig because he's locked to him the whole time wow. he has no idea what's going on. and i said hey you uh confirm heading he's like south i'm like come north he's like okay doesn't tell me he's locked to the guy he's he's a brand new wingman wow. mano had like 150 hours in the jet our it? other wingman behind water commander who was my number three so our number four guy had like 90 hours in the jet brand new guys uh, hanging on the first night of combat at night and so mano just does what his weapons officer tells him okay so he breaks lock doesn't say a word and he just spins and falls brown behind me um and so i do the spin he gets back behind me the whole thing and we figure all this out after it's over right so i basically as soon as i swing the corner i get a lock you know i don't know seven eight nine miles away it's the same it's the mig i know it is same guy same altitude same heading everything although he's starting to slow down to send a little bit mm-hmm. so i ask him I'm like okay help me out here boys because it's the uh it's the NATO AWACS. I'm like, declare bullseye, blah, blah. And they go, uh, uh, friendly. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I'm like, did I just shoot friendly? Sink, you know, your stomach kind of get a sinking feeling. Yeah. And I figured out what happened. And we know what happens when, when plots merge on the AWACS scope, they'll often, they'll get the same idea and they'll transfer and go out of it. Cause they don't know who's who now, depending on how things are picked up. So when they merge, as the plots separate, they just see that I'm a friendly and my wing was a friendly and merged with that. Maybe which they didn't know what it was because they didn't have it all together. So they just got a friendly track marching off. Right. So I'm like, son of a gun. So I break lock and go, maybe there's an F 16 or somebody around. That's what I was trying to get that earlier. Yeah. Come to ask where people were at. And, uh, so I'm, I break the lock, I do a full radar scope, I'm climbing back up to get back in the, and the ability to shoot him again, get close enough. And uh, so uh, nobody's home, nothing on the scope at all except one radar blip, no friendly, no, nothing. So I lock him up again. He's a little bit lower, a little bit slower, heading back towards Bajanika. And I go, declare, bulls, blah, 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 blah. And AWACS goes, friendly. I go, holy crap. I'm like, well, I know it's a bad guy. But now I'm kind of honor bound. There's nothing I can do. I can't yeah. shoot at something that just said it's friendly because it maybe what if it is, right? Yeah. Even though in my heart of hearts I know it's not, but I, I can't break that rule. Um, and we had no other means at the time to 
electronically ad- identify them ourselves. So I'm kind of stuck now. And I follow them for a little while. We get close to the, you know, the edge back over the edge of Belgrade, the surface air missiles, you know, the rings and stuff. I'm like, ah, screw this. This is stupid. We're out of here. So I break lock, turn back, go back to the cap and uh, hang out for, you know, uh, however much longer it was, another 10, 15 minutes to where, you know, the, the strike package is over and everybody's kind of pulling their way out, heading back north and leaving. So it was a pretty chaotic night. Um, I was the only guy up north that got to do shooting, and I ended up shooting four missiles off the jet by myself. And I was kind of in the middle of the whole thing. And there's yeah. F-16s, F-15s, this, and it's like I'm the guy right smack in the middle. So that t- that luck and that timing thing, right? I mean, anybody else could have been, would have, yeah. should have, depending. It's the guy in the middle of the fight the whole time, shooting back and forth. So I uh, just had that knack for being in the right place at the right time on that one, and um, could have done some things a lot better. Definitely missed a chance to do it right and shoot down that second aircraft. Uh, I am glad. It sounds weird, but I'm glad that the guy that I did shoot ejected because uh, I have oh. no desire to kill anybody. Um, it's just one of those things. It's just another. They're putting two men, you know, two pilots, making them face each other in combat, and you know you want to die, so you do your job. Uh, down south to to top it off because it was kind of cool in a way. Um, not the war part of it, like I said, but it's cool for the F-15 squadrons, the air-to-air guys. We had a um, we got let's see one two three four of the six kills. Um, were by F- our, our little F-15 squadron, which for us is awesome, right? Because we're not awesome, dropping yeah. bombs. Never, never F-15s don't drop bombs, so it's only air-to-air for us with the airplanes. And uh, Rico Rodriguez, who had gotten two kills in Desert Storm down south, was the very first yeah. night. I know we had talked about that kind of boring. He just basically drove at the first MiG. He was in the southern strike pack at the same time we were up north. He just drove right at the guy, took a shot, cranked off to the side, waited, the guy hit him, blew up, and it was over. And that was it. Down south, I was like, oh, wow, that was kind of boring, right? And that was it in a nutshell. And then uh, a couple days later, we had that 2v2 during the daytime um, that they shot down the two MiG-29s over Bosnia. And then two F-16s at different times. Um, There's actually a Dutch um, guy, if you're familiar, remember, um, he shot down uh, with two A-120s yeah, on that yeah. second strike package. Right. Yeah. And then it was many, many, six or seven weeks into it when there was that one – uh, May 29 that took off in the middle of a daytime package and an F-16 oh, yes. yeah. uh, shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was in a nutshell. So it wasn't the first night was pretty busy, um, and then it got real quiet after that, and the service got uh, you know real smart and started tossing a lot of surface-to-air missiles at us for the next uh, couple <laughs> yeah. months. And it was a battle after that. So, um, that was so, that, yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. But that's that's kind of the that's kind of the version of the story, I guess. That's uh, out front. Yeah, I can imagine it was. You didn't get much sleep that night, Dorza. No, I did not. And uh, Mano was pretty funny. He was my wingman, and uh, of course, brand new guy, barely hanging on. And we went back to the hotel, and we went and got some breakfast because then we're on this night schedule. So then we tried to try to sleep. Right, Mano just had this smile on his face. You couldn't get rid of it, you know, because he was just like in this. Here he's this brand new guy, and he's in the middle of this thing, and all the stuff he saw and was listening to, and he's just like, oh, he means completely overwhelmed. And he couldn't even talk. I mean, just like he had this look in his face the whole that whole morning to the next night, and then of course we just keep going, keep going. But um, he was uh, it was pretty funny, and I had Mana with me when we uh, when the F-117 was shot down. That was kind of cool. When a couple nights later, because it was different, um, because we were supposed to fly down south, and we got weathered out. And our northern foreship was going to be up for like seven hours. So we went and replaced them and kicked them out. And we got to be in there while it was happening. And that was really cool in a different way because you know there's a ground that's on your team. Yeah. And the other team's trying to get them. And you're listening to the frequency and you're watching the A-10s and the helicopters come in and listening to the ground fire. And you're sitting right over the top of the whole thing going, can't do anything about it, you know. But you listen to the whole thing. So mm-hmm. a lot of really um, interesting things you got to see that 
you know, you always train for, but very few people get the uh, chance to see them over mm -hmm. the career. So see and do a lot of the a lot of really interesting things. The current F-14 Squadron's calibre wings have in stock are VF-142 Ghost Riders and VF-14 Top Hatters. They are both in 72nd scale with a level of detailed experience one would expect on a high quality plastic kit. You can check them out by visiting caliberwings.com. Thank you. You then were lucky enough to go to the F-22 Raptor. Can you tell us how this came about? Yeah, so, um, you know, all the way back to college, I saw pictures of that airplane going, that's a cool jet. Mm -hmm. That'd be something to fly. Um, never figured it would happen. I went back after Lake Unique to the weapons schools. So I was teaching there for about three years, and uh, towards the end of that assignment, they had put a request out, finally, uh, in uh, uh, 2001, and they uh, asked for experienced pilots, because they obviously wanted experienced pilots, had to be a weapons school graduate. Mm -hmm. They wanted mostly FC guys. So myself and another guy at the left school put our package in, and a few other people around the Air Force did. And I somehow, luck and timing again, um, I was one of the eight guys um, picked to go out to Edwards and do the operational test. Mm -hmm. So went out there, and uh, right after that, I was in 2002 in the summer, and spent the next year hoping we are going to get a chance to fly it because the aircraft wasn't really on time, and it was having all kinds of electronics problems, and the basic airframe engines, all that stuff was fantastic. That was all money, uh, the stealth, all those things. But the electronic suite was tough. They were trying to get to work right. Mm -hmm. That was the hard part. And we were about 50-50 whether or not that aircraft was going to survive the, the testing process wow. and make it or not. So, um, But anyways, uh, we trained ourselves because nobody else had used it before tactically. They'd only done the, the beeps and squeaks testing. So um, we started figuring out how we're going to do this and how to train ourselves and how we're going to use the aircraft, start rewriting the 3-1, which is the tactics manual, and how we're going to use this new airplane with the stealth stuff. I think I actually coined the term uh, offensive stealth versus passive or defensive stealth because oh, okay. B2F1 is defensive, uh, and they just have to, uh, they have to run and hide. They can't shoot back, can't turn, can't fight. The F-22, on the other hand, is an offensive stealth aircraft. It uses the stealth to not be shot. But it goes on the attack. Mm -hmm. I mean, it obviously it goes to sneak down other things, you know, drop bombs, uh, that kind of thing. So a different use. And, you know, it's, it flies high and fast, and that helps a lot as well. You know, F-117, a low, slow airplane. B-2's high but slow. You know, so a lot of different things we started kind of toying with to go, what's going to work here? And what kind of formations? Do you fly two expensive F-22s right beside each other like we did F-15s, F-16s? Mm -hmm. Or do you split apart, you know, using the advantage of the advantages that the aircraft has so we experimented with a lot of things I just, I just got lucky to be one of those eight guys we went out to edwards and uh, did that for about a year year and a half until the test took place and an interesting story the uh we had a hard time getting two aircraft to work at the same time because we had four or five airplanes available mm -hmm. but they just couldn't they didn't have them working right all kinds of maintenance problems yeah not our maintainers it's issues and the very first day that they had two jets together that were able to fly and work, we had F-15s from Langley uh, next door and um, uh, over at Nellis, and we were going to meet them in the airspace when we could get aircraft up to fly. And myself and one other guy, Banger Newton, uh, were at the uh, at the test facility. Everybody else was gone doing something, whatever. The two of us were there. They came in. They were like, hey, we got two airplanes. They're working. Do you guys want to fly? <laughs> we're like, yeah. So let's go. Let's see if we can make it work. So Banger and I hop in the jets, and everything works, and we call the Langley guys, get them to come out the airspace. It all is going to set up. So we fly, the two of us. And granted, this is we've done lots of simulator stuff and all this, you know, all the promises, but everybody's still like, yeah, is this stealth thing really going to work the way they say it is, you know, et cetera? And we're going against F-15, so now it's no longer simulator. It's real. And this is the first time this has ever happened in history. 
We take off, we get out to the airspace, we got tankers on both sides, we got four operational F-15s from Langley and the two of us, and we're going to try this out, try our tactics, you know, do whatever, see how it works. So we set up the uh, battles and we do, I don't know how many, five, six, seven, eight intercepts by the end of the day. Every time we just run right at them, go high, we'd go lower, we'd offset, we'd do whatever. Every time we shot them, killed them all, wow. never saw us, rolled behind them, wow. every single time. First, first time or two, they're like, where are you guys at? We're like, we're a mile behind you. They're like, what? And they do, what you guys? <laughs> it's like, we're like, holy mackerel. We came back, wrote our test reports up. Like, I have seen the future. I'm like, this is not, it is not fake. This stuff flipping works. Um, these are operational combat pilots. There were some uh, combat experience pilots. I mean, these are, there's nothing fake about this. This is the real deal. Yeah. And uh, we wrote that up and everybody was like, oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me. So it was really cool. And then we flew like, one or two more times because the jets were still working. They kept doing stuff, but wow. um, it was the first time we'd ever seen that. I had all these uh, tests or these folks that had been working on the jet their whole career had come up and one of them was crying. He was like, you just validated my whole life's work. I mean, it was really awesome you know, to see, uh, but it was the first time that we had had a chance to see it do its thing. Mm-hmm. And then we, of course we started testing against F 16s, other F 15s. We had special test things come out. I mean, we just did a lot of really cool stuff. And after a while, you know, people were like, Okay, this is uh, this is no longer a joke. This thing is not just theory anymore. This is real, and oh, by the way, it works. And then yeah. part of the test was four ships, where we launched, I, I believe, ten missions. If I remember right, of four ships, I could have that wrong. Four uh, V up to like twelve plus F-15s or F-16s or mix, you know, whatever, to do these tactics. And I remember us coming up with some things that was getting so ridiculous that the F-16 guys over there, Nellis, would be like, "Are you guys actually flying in the airspace? Or are you just calling us dead in the radio?" <laughs> it's kind of true because they never. <laughs> yeah. And I remember one of my favorite 4B-12, I believe it was, and I'm pretty sure it was F-15s on the Nellis Ranges. Um, we said, hey, let's see how fast we can kill them all, you know, just like being cocky, arrogant, yeah. right? So right to, you know, right to Mach 2, right high altitude, just fast as we could go, just, just ran them down. And I believe from 80 miles apart or something like that, um, it took us like two minutes and 22 seconds or something to kill all 12 of them. And they no never way. saw us took shot. And you're like, you got to be flipping kidding me. I remember once a two-ship had peeled off and was trying to run away. Then I'm at high altitude fast, and they're running away at Mach 1. And I've got, I've got like Mach 1 a closure, you know, like <laughs> running them down. I mean, that kind of stuff with the airplane, you're like, yeah. this thing is unbelievable. So uh, we learned a lot, and uh, we were pretty surprised on some of the uh, – just how well the aircraft actually did. Like I said, because, you know, the basic airframe engines, all that stuff, is it's, it's a thoroughbred all by itself. But when you add – the sensors working correctly and that the jets are talking to each other and sharing data and, and the whole package comes together with tactics. It's, you know, nothing is perfect, but it's nearly untouchable when it's done right. Um, you know, and, and it's even, you know, it's got that same kind of capability against ground threats. I mean, you can kind of mess with them too and see and not see stuff. So it's a very capable aircraft across the board. Um, and that stealth matters. I mean, that's a big deal, right? You know, I mean, cause you got like the super horn, they go, it's stealthy. I'm like, not really. Cause when you no. hang all the weapons off, yeah. it's stealth anymore. Any stuff hanging on the outside really isn't stealthy. There's serious numbers you have to get to. Um, and you know, aircraft really need to be clean, uh, to be stealthy, you know, and most aircraft, if you're not putting it all internal, you're not clean. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you know, big powerful radars, like, you know, the SAMs and stuff, you know, it doesn't, you know, they've got a lot of energy and they can see you when you got stuff hanging on your airplane. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, people tell you that, well, you know, our, our Raphael or, our, uh, you know, our super Hornet, you know, they're really stealthy. Not really, not mm-hmm. in the, not in the classic sense. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's a lot of story. Again, a lot of me talking on it, but that's how luckily I ended up in the F 22 and 
got to do some really cool testing and uh, got a chance to go to Langley and stand up that operation and got a really weird phone call to go up to Elmendorf to stand up that operation. And um, after three standups in the F-22 and 20 years in the Air Force and flying all the stuff I got to do, I said, you know, hey, it's really awesome. Love it. But now it's the Pentagon and staff and all kinds of other silly stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the mission of flying anymore. And that's what I love to do. And we just decided to we were back in Alaska for the second time. We're going to we're going to park it. So parked it, got out, fly for FedEx and my little mall zipping around bush flying and having fun. That's my that's my fighter flying now. It's my little mall airplane. But um, it was it was a heck of a career, Mike. I can't lie. I, mean, I got to do some really cool stuff, meet some fantastic people, um, you know, lifelong friends and uh, things that I could have never imagined, you know, 30 years ago that I would have a chance to do and things I got to see. It's incredible. Yeah, because I know t- time's tight for you, Dozer. So I'm just going to quickly ask you, what were, uh, you became the demo pilot in 2005 and 2006. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, they say the demo pilot, and Max Mogo always gets mad because he was the real first demo pilot. Oh. So he gave me grief all um, I, I helped create the demo. In 2005, when I showed up at Langley, there was only two of us qualified to fly the airplane, myself and Corky. Uh, and um, uh, so... At the time, you know, the aircraft was still struggling on how many we were going to buy and, and the money and how much it cost. And, you know, of course, Air Force only. There was no support from the Navy, the Marines, or anybody else. You know, like the F-35, it's got all these other people that yeah. want it. So they were struggling, um, you know, politically with the aircraft. And so the commander of Air Combat Command, he looked me up first. He's like, hey, Dozer. He's like, you're going to stamp the denim. I'm like, say what? He's like, you're going to stamp the denim. I'm like, oh, come on. I'm like, I'm busy. I'm like, I got like three jobs. And. And, I'm, I, and he's like, you're going to do it. I'm like, oh, yes, sir. So um, there was no demo uh, support group set up or anything yet. And so we didn't have the full profile. Uh, and it was kind of fun in one way because I didn't have all the oversight. I could kind of do what I wanted. So I would do like my little mini, you know, goof off behind the show lines or up at high altitude because nobody really knew what to do with me. Um, we did the the heritage flights, you know, with the old warbirds yeah. with flying formation cool got to fly in a mustang and a t6 and some other cool old uh, warbirds that was really a lot of fun um but the honest part of that what it was really for was to showcase the aircraft and get it in front of the public and give me a chance to talk on the radio and tv and you know newspaper you know interviews whatever in front of folks at the air show and go let me tell you about your f-22 because people were not hearing anything except how much it cost and, and the downside they weren't hearing the stories like I just told you, let me tell you what this thing can do. Yeah. And also people can do that. I'm like, yeah, you have no idea. This is on our side. I'm like, we need this. I try to tell people like, this is like two football teams playing. (laughs) And one of the football teams is visible. It wipes out the field. I mean, it's not, you know, F 86 to F F four to F 15. It kind of a, you know, just continues with evolution. I'm like, no, this is revolution. This takes all that stuff and wipes it off. It's over again. It's that big of a change. And so the demo that, that's that, thing that happened in 2005 and six was more about me getting out in front of the public and having a chance to showcase the aircraft and tell the story as much as it was about the demo. Now, a lot of the maneuvers and other stuff, you know, I helped vet those and run through them and I did a lot of them and practiced them and, and all that kind of stuff. So kind of helped. So yeah, I, I kind of stood it up. Um, but you know, again, if I see Max, he'll yell at me if I say that I was the first demo pilot. Cause like I said, he gets mad. Because yeah. He was the first that went and did the full demo thing in front of everybody. I just kind of did it on my own, you know, either yeah. behind the show line or you know, whatever. So just kind of showing people things. So, um, matter of fact, once I remember it now, I, I popped into the clouds at one point, you know, and it was kind of one of those things I just did to, to depart, leave him, you know, like kind of thing. And I remember the air show guy was looking at the FA guy. Or something. he's like, hey, can he do that? He's like, I don't know. He's F 22. I guess he can do it. You know, it wasn't on purpose, but it was funny because guys, nobody really knew how to treat me 
in the yeah. F-22. It was this airplane and everybody's like well he sees everything and he knows everything in that jet you know because it's kind of funny so it was a really interesting time i enjoyed doing the air shows and talking to people i was way too busy to do that job um but uh, it was cool to get it in front of the public and try to explain to them just just what mm-hmm. just what america had on its hands because mm-hmm. a lot of people maybe even today really don't still understand just how capable that jet is and i wish unfortunately it did not work i wish we had bought more because we need several hundred more than we have to do the mission that we're being asked to do, but we don't have nearly enough aircraft, unfortunately. So Yeah, they are a brilliant machine. But can you briefly sum up what you did after um, this, the demo role in 2006 until you finished your Air Force career? Uh, while I was still doing that demo thing that summer, I got a call um, from uh, the operator, yeah, the ops group commander at Elmador, back to Elmador. And the F-22 was supposed to go to New Mexico next um, and Alaska after that. So I thought I'd be stuck at Langley for a while. Well, I guess based on politics and some other things happening, they switched those. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, now goes, holy mackerel, we don't have two or three years to get ready. We've got like months before, you know, they're, you know, less than a year before the aircraft will show up. So they were in a mad scramble. Yeah. And the one-star wing commander, Hawk Carlisle, um, who I consider a friend because he was, you know, when he was a brand new lieutenant colonel, I was lieutenant of the squadron in Elmendorf back in the 90s, right, flying F-15s. There were only five names available to immediately move and go start standing up the operation at Elmendorf. I was mm-hmm. one of those five. That was a lieutenant colonel and a command, commander qualified, so I could get, I could do it. Mm-hmm. And I was the only name of those five that Hawk Carlisle knew. So he called. He, I got the phone call. Hey, Dozer, you want to come up to Elmendorf? And I'm like, Yeah, <laughs> I'll go back. Uh, and he told me he's like, Hey, they switched on us. It's not going to New Mexico. It's coming to Alaska next. We need somebody to come start standing it up, getting it ready because we're gonna have the first jets in like you know ten months. I'm like, Whoa, okay. So, of course, I didn't turn that opportunity down because it meant I'd get a chance to be a squadron commander. And uh, we went up to Elmendorf after that and uh, took some time to stand up, became commander of the 90th Fighter Squadron. I was actually an F-15E squadron commander for one day. Okay. Uh, we, had two- <laughs> they left and we brought the F-22s up. I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, it was towards the end of that when I knew it was time I was going to have to go off to you know, staff and school and Pentagon and all those other silly things after that. And my wife and I were looking at each other going, we love Alaska. Kids love it. You know, this is our second assignment coming right up on 20 years of service. I'm like, yeah, I really want to move and do all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for So a lot of reasons, family and, and various things, we decided it was time to get out. So got out and became the quintessential standard X fighter pilot. That was a airline guy. Flew for Delta for about a year, year and a half waiting on FedEx. Eventually mm-hmm. got hired by FedEx. Domiciled in Anchorage, so I'm home a lot. And bought a little uh, bush plane with a couple X Air Force uh, fighter pilot buds. And uh, we fly all the time out in the bush doing other cool stuff. And that's it, man. Just kind of enjoying life now. And uh, until this other job I told you about popped up earlier this year, which is keeping me a little busy right now. It wasn't on my radar scope. So. Yes. Are you allowed to tell, you allowed to tell our, uh, our viewers what you're doing currently in that role? Yeah, I got appointed by our state governor to sit in a Senate seat. Um, so right now I'm a sitting state senator. <laughs> was not anywhere in my radar as of January of this past year. But uh, February, it all kind of took place. And uh, silly me, instead of saying, heck no, what the heck are you thinking? I'm not doing that. I, I volunteer. I'm fine. I'll do it. And, uh, and, uh, so I volunteered to put the suit on one more time, um, uh, to serve this time my state instead of the country. Uh, so kind of, you know, beating my head against the wall with headaches of politics and, uh, trying to have good policy and balance budgets and do all those other silly things now. So I'm not, not nearly as much fun as flying aircraft. Um, but I am serving again just one more time, so we'll see how far this goes. But uh, this is not fun, and I don't enjoy it compared to my previous life. No, but it's certainly an interesting role, that's for sure. So, do you have any hobbies? 
Uh, yeah, I do. Fish, hunt, fly. I have a little jet ski, so we live on a little lake, so I like the jet ski because playing in the water is fun. I grew up in the water in Florida, um, and uh, we shoot a lot, too. I know over there in uh, Europe, that's kind of, ooh, shooting stuff oh, yeah. in America. Everybody's got but uh, we do it. You know, we hunt, uh, so we do have guns for that, and mm-hmm. uh, we also take them for protection because we are not the top of the food chain in Alaska. No. So when we walk here often, we have a big rifle or shotgun or you know something else on us just in case we run into things, which we have, big bears and other things happen. Wow. Um, and uh, so, you know, we have them for practical reasons uh, as well. But, yeah, we do that quite a bit, too. So and we do some competition shooting because it's, it's like I don't do the sport. I mean, I, I love to play sports, but for me, shooting has become like a golf, you know. Right, yeah. Uh, so it's a very big sport over here for a lot of things competition-wise. So, yeah, there's, I have a fair amount of hobbies. They're kind of diverse. Certainly keep yourself busy, does it? <laughs> That's for sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. So do you have a favorite aircraft you've flown? Um, well, yeah. Okay. So let's go back a bit. I think I was born 50 years too late. Um, honestly, if I could fly and own one aircraft of all of them and have flown in that era, it would have been a P-51. It would have been a Mustang. Um, and I got a couple, one, even got my wife a ride in one in Florida that a friend owns a couple. Um, she even said, okay, now you're, you're okay. You can buy a Mustang now. Once I told her that we can afford it, but you know, she's like, you can get one. So I love the Mustang. I think that's probably my favorite aircraft of all time. If I could afford to buy one, it would probably be a Mustang. Mm-hmm. Um, of, I just love the history, the sound, everything about them. And it's just, it's a fantastic airplane. Performance wise, you're not going to beat an F-22. Um, I mean, it's just, I've been at 60,000 feet, you know, like 10 degrees, 15 degrees nose high at Mach 2 accelerating. Um, you know, it really will accelerate in the climb going up, you know, combat loaded. I mean, just it's it's a it's a monster you know so it can't it can't scoff any of that but uh yeah my favorite aircraft of all time i think it'd have to be a mustang so how many hours did you get in f-15 and f-22 i was just shy of 2000 in the f-15 and uh about 800 in the f-22 pretty good <laughs> and finally do you ever get sick of talking about aviation uh no probably never <laughs> i love airplanes man. I, I sit in our backyard with just little airplanes going over and it's funny because my neighbors you know they all fly too we live in a little air park and we'll all be sitting there and an airplane to come over and it's like we're all staring at it you yeah. know it's like i've been since i was a little kid and I, my wife laughs she's like you're gonna be doing that till the day you die you look up every time an airplane comes over doesn't matter what kind of airplane it is fast jet big jet you know little freaking puddle jumper doesn't matter just love airplanes man everything about it some some things get in your blood i guess you can't uh, can't deny it but i just I love being up there. And that's where I feel free. Yeah. I really feel free and just kind of, you know, my, everything's alive and, you know, I'm paying attention to everything. It just, it feels kind of like my second home. Yeah. You know? Well, Dozer, thanks very much for being on the show and uh, sharing your experience of your career. It's been absolutely brilliant. And I know our viewers are going to, you know, really love this interview. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for not putting me on the spot with any tough questions I'd have to answer about. No, I can't talk about that. You did a really good job. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.